as I just mentioned, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 for our sermon today. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me there or find the text printed in your bulletin. We're going to look at the entire chapter. It's only 16 verses. Not nearly as long as some of the ones later in 1 Corinthians. And this week we're continuing a series that Barry started last week. It's going to last all summer going through the book of 1 Corinthians. And the title of this series is Good News in the Midst of the Slavery of the Prevailing Culture. Good News in the Midst of the Slavery of the Prevailing Culture. We'll see how Paul, his first letter to the church in Corinth, helps us understand what this means. Before I read our passage for us, let me pray and ask for the Lord's help. Gracious God, you've told us that your word is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing the division of joints and marrow of soul and spirit and discerning the intentions of the heart. Lord, would you sanctify us in the truth, for your word is truth. Speak, Lord, for your servants listen. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Here now the reading of God's holy word, 1 Corinthians 2, starting... In verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not proclaim, or did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But, as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person, which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you, if you were honest, had no earthly idea what to do? Perhaps it was a situation at work, a problem, and you just had no idea how to go about solving it. Maybe it was 
trying to parent a difficult child and you're just left confused. How do I parent this child? Or perhaps there's something simple like a riddle and you're just so confused, you can't figure it out. Walter Lord, in the book, The Good Years, talks about how the Great Depression impacted J.P. Morgan. One day, Morgan called in one expert after another, seeking opinion and advice. At length, his secretary asked him, Mr. Morgan, why don't you tell them what to do? He paused and then replied, I don't know what to do myself. But sometimes someone will come in with a plan that I know will work, and then I will tell them what to do. Perhaps you can relate to that. You don't know what to do. You're confused, but you also want to be in control. You think somehow something's going to come about. I'll figure it out, and then I'll be able to go back to being in control. Whether that's the case for you right now or not, I think we can all admit that there's times that we don't know what to do. And so we need wisdom. Thankfully, God promises to give us wisdom. James 1.5 says, if any, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously without reproach. And it will be given to him. Here in the text before us, we find Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, teaching us about godly wisdom. And from this text, I want us to see how Paul teaches two main important truths about godly wisdom. The content of godly wisdom and the source of godly wisdom. The content and the source. So first, the content of godly wisdom. When you hear the word wisdom, perhaps you're like me and your mind automatically goes to someone you think of who was or is wise. Maybe you think of a teacher or a grandparent. Maybe you think of a pastor or an author. Maybe you think of someone in the Bible like Solomon who asked the Lord for wisdom and God gave it to him. Chances are we can think of someone who is we would consider as wise. But then if we try to define wisdom, that's a whole different ballgame. Webster's Dictionary defines wisdom as the ability to discern inner qualities and relationships. They would call insight. The second definition is good sense. So insight or good sense. Now that's a good start, but surely biblical or godly wisdom goes deeper than that, right? A good definition of wisdom according to the Bible that I often use is this. Wisdom is the practical application of the truths of Scripture into everyday life. The practical application of the truths of God's Word to everyday life. Now notice what Paul says in verse 6 of our text. He says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Paul instructs the church in Corinth and you and I as readers of God's holy word about wisdom. And he's teaching us something important. He tells us about godly wisdom by contrasting godly wisdom versus worldly wisdom. And this raises an important question for us. 
What exactly is this worldly wisdom or the wisdom of the age, as Paul calls it down in verse 6? Well, he doesn't define it. But we know that in the Greco-Roman world of Paul's day, wisdom was very important. Just think of the Greek philosophers, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, and others, and their lasting impact. The wisdom of the day in Paul's time was centered around human knowledge. Friends, worldly wisdom hasn't really changed in 2,000 years. Today, like then, secular wisdom has one foundational principle. Human autonomy. Humans are the measure of all things. We determine what is right and good and wise and true. And many today have bought into this. And it can creep into our thinking as well as Christians if we're not careful. In fact, in some ways, that's what sin's about, right? Human autonomy. We want to be the captain of our own ship. But notice the context of verse 4. In verses 1 through 5, Paul is talking about his preaching when he visited the church in Corinth. And he's continuing his line of thought from chapter 1, talking about how he was going about preaching. In verse 1 of our text, Paul says that he didn't come preaching in line with the Greco-Roman flashy methods. You see, back then, there was an emphasis on eloquence for eloquence sake. It was all about rhetoric and sounding really good and smart and impressive so that people would think you're smart and then follow you. Apparently, the Corinthians were being confronted with this kind of worldly wisdom in their church. Perhaps it was a guest preacher, not an associate pastor, but a guest preacher, who was having these kind of flashy presentations. Paul is telling them, hey, I don't buy into this approach to preaching. He doesn't care about these methods or that kind of content. He didn't try to impress them with how smart he could sound, being so eloquent. He didn't simply give them a message that they wanted to hear. Over in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. We see this in our own day, don't we? People want to hear a message that sounds good and makes them feel good. And unfortunately, many pastors and many churches have bought into this. Back in 2005, Christian Smith published a book entitled Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. He and someone he was working with studied uh, or interviewed 267 teenagers across 45 states in America, looking at what they believed about God and religion. And he discovered a pattern in the beliefs of these young people, and he coined the term moralistic therapeutic deism. I don't know if you've heard that term before. Moralistic therapeutic deism. And there's a few main points that this approach believes, and don't worry if you're trying to write these down You can find them uh, on a document that we call the Sermon Guide and Discussion Questions. It's something we put together each week. It goes out on the email later in the week that talks about the services. It's also on the church website. But there's five main ideas about this moralistic therapeutic deism. It really is the wisdom of the day in the church. 
point number <clears throat> point number one. A God exists who created and orders the world and watches over human life on earth. That's deism. Point number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. It's the moralistic ethic. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. That's therapeutic. That's number three. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when he is needed to solve a problem. This goes back to the deism. And then point number five, lastly, good people go to heaven when they die. This goes back to the moralism. And what the what Christian Smith realized is this wasn't just the belief of teenagers some 16 years ago. It was also the belief of parents. And then even more scary is it was coming from churches. Churches were teaching this. Friends, this is the wisdom of our day in many churches. A God exists, but he really isn't that involved. And he really wants you to be happy and good, but primarily happy. And good people go to heaven. Perhaps you're here today and that's what you believe. Maybe you believe it and you don't realize it. Or maybe you used to hear this taught somewhere else. This is the furthest thing from the message of the Bible. And it's the antithesis of godly wisdom that Paul lays out in our text. Godly wisdom contrasts this secular worldly wisdom. In verse 2, Paul says this, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Friends, the content of godly wisdom is quite simple. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And this fits with what Paul said back in chapter 1, verse 24, where he says, Christ, the wisdom of God, the power of God. Jesus Christ is wisdom incarnate. Now this doesn't mean that Paul threw out all other wisdom. It doesn't mean that he ignored philosophy or math or science. If you went up to the Apostle Paul and asked him what 2 plus 2 is, he would not say Jesus. He wasn't like the little kindergarten Sunday school class. Have you heard about them? Not at our church, but another church. The teacher was giving a demonstration about how God created everything, including the animals. And for her illustration, she asked the kids in her class, what's brown and furry and has a bushy tail? And eats nuts. All the kids and one boy shouted, Jesus! Right? Because Jesus is always the right answer in Sunday school. Laughing a little bit, she said, no, 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 hear me out. What is brown and has a bushy tail and furry and eats nuts? Again, the entire class shouted, Jesus! The teacher got a little frustrated and said, no, 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 listen closely. What's brown and furry and has a big bushy tail and eats nuts? One little boy quietly raised his hand and said, Well, I know the answer is Jesus, but it sure sounds like a slur. The Apostle Paul is not saying here that the answer to everything is Jesus in some simplistic way. No, what he's saying is he's talking about his preaching. He's saying in his preaching he knows nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He's not preaching Worldly wisdom. He's not preaching politics. He's not preaching what people want to hear to make people feel good. No, he's preaching Christ and Him crucified. But we can take this specific point and, and generalize it 
to the idea that really at the heart of godly wisdom is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, it's the good news of the gospel and really the whole counsel of God because Scripture is primarily about Jesus. Is this relevant for everyday life? Absolutely. The good news of Jesus Christ impacts everything that we do. You see, the Corinthian believers were tempted to fall into a false belief. They were tempted to separate their beginning of the Christian life, initially their faith, professing faith in Jesus, and how they lived the Christian life, thinking that somehow they needed something extra, something special to keep going. But Paul is teaching them and us that the same gospel that gets us into God's family, trusting in Jesus, is the same gospel that helps us grow. And so that is incredibly relevant. In the midst of our grief and pain, the hope of the cross and resurrection gives us peace and comfort. When we struggle with anxiety and depression, the ministry of our Savior gives us hope and strength. When your marriage seems to be falling apart and you're not sure what to do, Christ offers you hope through forgiveness and reconciliation. Children, when someone is mean to you at school, the fact that Jesus is your true friend will give you strength and hope to keep going. Teenagers, when you see on Snapchat or Instagram that you weren't invited to that party, to that gathering, you can rest knowing that Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. In verse 7, Paul says, We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. This secret wisdom is not how we think about secrets. We think about secrets as, well, I've got to find the, the code to crack the secret and figure this out. And only certain enlightened people can know the secret. The secret in Scripture is talking about something that was once hidden, but is now revealed. So that secret wisdom is about Jesus Christ. It's the gospel, because prior to Christ's coming, it was not abundantly clear. But with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, it's now crystal clear who Jesus is and what he did for us and what impact that has on our life today. That's the content of godly wisdom. It's what you and I need. We don't need the fluff of this world. That's really what it is. It's just fluff. Rather, what we need is true godly wisdom found in the person and work of Jesus. The second truth Paul teaches us about godly wisdom is the source of wisdom. Knowing the content of godly wisdom will only get us so far. We need to know the source because if we're looking in the wrong place, we're going to end up with bad content as well. Look with me at verse 10. Paul says, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. There it is right there. The source of godly wisdom. It's the Holy Spirit. God reveals the wisdom of Christ through His Spirit. Godly wisdom does not come through a Ph.D. program or through a seminary study or through anything else. It doesn't come from the bastion of information in our society today, social media. It comes through the Holy Spirit revealed by Him. 
Now we make sure we're clear about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not an it, it is a he. The Holy Spirit is not a force. It's not like the force in Star Wars. Nor is it a blue light, like the little boy says, and heaven is for real. No, the Holy Spirit is a person, the third person of the Trinity who's always existed, and whose primary role is to reveal who God is, to bring us to saving faith, and to help us grow. It's what we call, in theological terms, the sexual calling. The Shorter Catechism, Westminster Shorter Catechism, says that effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds of the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our will, He persuades and enables us to embrace Jesus Christ, freely offered to us in the gospel. The Holy Spirit shows us our sin, changes our will so that we love God, helps us understand who He is, gives us the ability to trust Christ, and then helps us grow for the remainder of our lives. That's a mighty way. It's a beautiful way. And it's a necessary way. But we cannot discover godly wisdom on our own. We can't search the universe and hope we find it. We can't read about it in textbooks. No, it's revealed by the Holy Spirit as He illumines God's Word. In verse 14, Paul says something rather shocking and a little bit humbling. He says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Do you see what he's saying there? The natural person, the non-Christian, the unregenerate one, cannot understand the wisdom of God on his or her own. It's not that they're simply unwilling. It's not that they haven't been taught. Rather, it's that they are unable to understand. It is impossible for a non-Christian to grasp the things of God unless they are revealed by the Holy Spirit. These things, Paul says, are folly to the unbeliever. That's why so many non-Christians laugh at us in our faith. It's folly to them. Back in chapter 1, Paul said, that the cross is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Have you ever come across someone who just is stubborn and they will not, will not accept Christ no matter how hard you try, no matter how clear you lay out the gospel? Maybe you've gotten frustrated thinking, why don't they get it? It's so clear. How could anyone ever believe that there's no God? This verse tells us why. Only through the work of the Spirit that anyone can believe. The only reason you believe is because the Holy Spirit worked in your heart, took out your heart of stone, and gave you a heart of flesh. Not that you have something going for you, one that you were smarter or better looking or anything like that. It was all God's work. So where does that leave us? Well, three brief points of application. First, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, it is abundantly important, so important for you and I to thank the Holy Spirit for revealing to us the wisdom of God in Jesus Christ. It should leave us in awe and in gratitude for what the Holy Spirit has done. So stop and thank Him. Secondly, if you are not a believer, Pray that the Holy Spirit would give you understanding. 
You cannot simply use your intellect and think through rationally and be like, okay, well, I'm going to become a Christian. It doesn't work that way. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you wisdom and to understand Christ. Third, if you're a believer, are you praying for the Holy Spirit to reveal His wisdom to others who don't know Him? Are you regularly praying for the conversion of your friends and family members who don't know Christ? Now, we're called to share the good news of Jesus. Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to make a defense for the hope that you have. But you will never win someone to Christ simply with apologetics of your own work. No one ever says, oh, well, I'm backed into an intellectual corner. You've shown me all these proofs for God, and so I'm just going to surrender my life to Jesus. It doesn't work that way. Unless the Holy Spirit changes their heart, they're never going to believe. So pray. And pray. And pray some more. Do not grow weary in praying for those who don't know Christ. On Mother's Day, Christian musician and author Shai Lin, who actually spoke at Horizon and Bonk Harkin a number of years ago, tweeted about the role his mother played in his conversion. He said this, I was well into adulthood, in full rebellion against God and hostile to Christianity, and visibly uncomfortable at the mention of Jesus' name. My mom prayed for me with tears every day for over a decade. The Lord heard her prayer and saved me. Praise God for praying moms. He goes on to say a direct quote from me to my mother years back. Mom, I'm never going to become a Christian. That's cool if it works for you, but stop trying to push it off on me. The Lord had other plans. And my mom kept praying. Has your college-age adult child walked away from the faith? Do your parents want absolutely nothing to do with the Lord Jesus Christ? Pray. Don't stop praying. The wisdom of God in Christ Jesus is spiritually discerned. He is the source. As we close, remember we all desperately need godly wisdom. Don't settle for the wisdom of the world. It may sound good on paper, but it won't work. Only the wisdom of God will meet your needs. When you aren't sure what to do, ask the Holy Spirit for wisdom. When you aren't sure what a passage of Scripture means, ask the Holy Spirit to reveal it to you. When you're stuck in your spiritual life, you don't seem to be growing, ask the Holy Spirit for wisdom. We need godly wisdom. By it, we are saved. By it, we continue to live the Christian life. And by it, we will one day reach our heavenly reward when Jesus calls us home and when he comes back. Let's close prayer.